The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them, because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Today's guest, Dr. Deepika Chopra, is an optimism doctor, the founder of the Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards, and the host of the Looking Up with Dr. Deepika Chopra podcast. Dr. Chopra holds a doctorate in clinical health psychology with a special interest in the mind-body connection. With special training in elevating empathy, reducing anxiety, and creating a balance within the technologically and social media-focused world today, by the way, these are all things I need to tackle, Dr. Chopra's work is a timely and beneficial benefit to anyone curious about living more fully, a self-mastery point of view, increasing happiness, and optimizing functionality and success. And to all that, I say, yes, please. Deepika, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me today. How are you doing? Or how are you really? (laughs) Uh, I'm good. I was about to just automatically uh, respond with, I'm great, but that would have been a lie. And I'm not starting this off with telling any lies. So (laughs) I'm okay. I'm pretty good. I'm okay. I'm okay. Well, okay. You know what? That's honest. You beat me to the punch because normally I like to ask people like, what was the last lie that you told? And, you know, I don't want it to have been that you are great. Is there anything else that you can think of that was the last lie you told? This is actually a really tricky question for me. I um, mm-hmm. I feel like I have this like, and I am not trying to say like at all qualifying this as like being a good person or not a good person, but I have always had like this inner, inner lie detector thing. And like, if I tell even a small lie, like I literally feel like throwing up and it was not something that was great as a teenager. Because I'm I think, sure, yeah, just inherently you tell you tell some lies as a teenager, but literally, like right after telling a lie, I would have like verbal vomit because I felt so no. sick to my parents and be like, no, that's not true, actually, blah 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 blah, like and my stomach would hurt, and it just is like this thing, and so I'm not great at lying. I don't do it often, not because it's again anything to do with like it's a moral thing. Although I do believe that telling the truth is the right thing to do. Um, it's literally because something I don't know, like somehow my body was not programmed to lie or to deal well with it, and I'd probably be a really bad poker player. Um, although I've never really played, I think though that probably the last lie I have told was maybe something to do with like one of two things. One, either like telling my child that there wasn't left of anything that maybe he wanted, like probably like a donut or something, just because I didn't want him to have it. Um, All gone. All gone. All gone. Sorry. Or, you know, I think something that I've actually been working on, and I know I haven't told this lie in a while because I've been working on it, but something I realized pre-pandemic that I was doing a lot of was sort of just making excuses and sometimes the excuses not being 100% true when I needed to like RSVP no to something um, or I just couldn't, I couldn't get somewhere, I couldn't do something, I couldn't be somewhere energetically. 
And I would just not feel comfortable enough to just say that. And so I would make up something that was like kind of not the truth or just embellished in order to get out of something. And I think that I just knowing and realizing and embracing more of my introvertedness and over this past year where I think everybody has had to say a lot of no's and sometimes it's been completely and most of the time out of our control. And so kind of getting used to the idea of taking more time to just like be within and making that okay. And that in, in itself is a reason enough to just not do something or not go somewhere. So I'm working on that. It's like a constant sort of work for me to not sort of feel bad and just say, I can't make it because I actually um, don't have the energy or I just, I literally, all I want to do is lay in my bed right now <laughs> and be okay with that. Right. Oh my God. First of all, you just opened up my world because I never thought to refuse an appearance at something based on the fact that I couldn't be there energetically. So I love the notion that I could be someplace physically, but energetically, I'm going to be at home watching Bravo. And also it's so funny, like my husband always says to me, it's like, you waste so much energy not making a decision just to say no. I like in my mind, I'm like, oh, but maybe if I did it and I keep it open ended. Yes. And I wait so far past like an acceptable amount of time to say no to something. And then I make it, it's like I have to elevate the stakes and I make it so much worse because then I'm on the hook. And it's like something that women do where it's like, then we feel bad. And it's like all this inner turmoil that I could yes. have just nipped in the bud if I said no, like right from the start. Yeah. And most of the time I've realized when you just say no, whether you have to give a reason or not, like the other person has actually been okay. It's just like so much yes. more was in my head of like, well, I should and I and like, uh, it would probably be good for me to do that. And like, I feel bad. And like, it just would have it, like literally the times I've done it, it's just simply gone like, no, I'm really sorry. I can't make it. Oh, man, that's too bad. We'll miss you. I'll miss you too. Right, exactly. It's sort of egocentric for us to think like that the party's going to end if we're not going to make it. You exactly. know what I mean? And so I have to like wrestle with it. And oh my God, she's going to be devastated. And I really should be there. Like I'm going to really let someone down. And then you're like, oh, I, I'm not going to be able to do it. And then the person's just like, ah, all, all good. Understand. And it also, I feel like I, I share with clients all the time this idea that RSVPing no is a form of self-care. And it also gives the other person, I feel like, sort of the chance next time around to also model that and take care of themselves and not have to show up to something because like you just did it and it was okay. Totally. So it's, like, it's like the gift of RSVPing no that just keeps giving. <laughs> Yes, I love that. Okay, so as someone who handles other people's emotions for a living, what has been your headspace lately in the sort of in-between in which we're currently existing? It's been really difficult, and it's something that I have to constantly, you know, it's that whole thing where I know that I'm really good at helping other people sort of work through their emotions and increase their resiliency and shift mindset, but when it comes to myself, I'm I'm not the best at it. And I say all the time, I am the optimism doctor, but I am not the most optimistic person. And I'm very transparent about my own journey and, you know, really open about myself working towards improving my own optimism and resiliency and sharing the times where I feel not okay or not resilient at all or, um, you know, not optimistic. And one of my biggest sources of anxiety and sort of fear and worry is definitely around medical stuff and health. 
And it's always been the thing that has sort of been my Achilles heel in my own personal optimism work. And so the pandemic has been definitely tough for me mentally. And then, yeah, the ping-ponging between everybody stay in, this is something that is really dangerous and detrimental, and we're going to be on lockdown and don't leave your home, you know, from the beginning of it and sanitize your groceries and don't be around anyone and wear masks and uh, wear gloves and all that to actually like we can let go on some of that stuff, but still wear masks. And then, you know, the vaccine that came out and offering some optimism and hope with that. I know when I got vaccinated, I totally felt, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel like things were gone. I was still someone that was just what I did differently was I was double masking because that was the time they were asking us to double mask. But I was taking a few more sort of I was I was doing a couple liberties. more a few more liberties for me that were important like going for walks which I should have been doing in the start but I I was too fearful to or going out to eat you know I still haven't eaten indoors at a restaurant since before the pandemic like we are like I just that's not what I feel comfortable with and so at that time I started eating outdoors a little bit and then very quickly with the delta variant and having two small kids that are not vaccinated has just completely kind of brought me a little bit more back in where I just, it's not gone and it's still a very precarious situation. And so I do remember though, a couple of the first times I went to some form of very small, intimate social gatherings, I was really- When you RSVP'd yes. I RSVP'd yes. And I felt good about (laughs) it and I went, but Uh I was like, oh my gosh, like I felt like so many emotions come up surrounding just being social, which I had never Mm -hmm. really felt before. And I found myself like excusing myself to go to the bathroom like two or three times when I didn't have to go to the bathroom, but I needed like alone time to kind of like gather myself and be like, oh my God, like I am so awkward. Like what is this small, like what I don't even, I don't know what to say. And then you know, kind of feeling down on myself about that or weird. And then I just decided to be really open and transparent about it when I came back out. And I was like, I'm having a really hard time with this. And it like, I'm feeling like I'm being really weird. And a couple of people were like, oh my God, I feel the same exact way. And it was just this realization that how can we expect ourselves to like completely ping pong back and forth between extreme fear to like, no, things are okay to like, no, be fearful again now get back out into society, but like kind of be careful, but then go back down. Like, obviously this is going to be something that we need to really treat ourselves with self-compassion. And I was hearing myself say this to other people that were having a really hard sort of re-entry time. And some of my clients going back into an office, um, you know, or family uh, settings or even intimate social settings or bigger events. And I was like, it's that whole thing where I'm like, I'm hearing myself say this to other people and I'm practicing so much compassion, but like, what about to my, towards myself? And so I think I've just been, you know, allowing myself now to be sort of open to however I'm feeling and not try at least the first thing not to judge myself. Today, the reason I was like, I'm okay, I was driving actually to get a PCR test um, because I am going to be supporting a charity that I believe in um, this weekend. And um, I appreciate how on top of this there being, we must all show you know, our vaccination cards and also a PCR negative test. And so I was going out there to just get an early morning test. And like I was listening to some music that I used to listen to in high school, and I'm a really big I'm very connected to my senses and memories and I'm super nostalgic. And I just got this wave of 
nostalgia for that time. And it made me smile a little bit and it brought me right back, but it also made me feel kind of sad because it was such a simple time and, and sort of miss it. And then I looked up and I was already in this emotional state and I looked up and I saw these like um, street signs that were like, thank you for masking. And I just like thought about dropping my kids off, my older son off to like summer camp and all of them wearing masks and you know, and then all these images started coming in my mind of what I've been seeing out of Afghanistan right now. And I just like was feeling very weighted. And I just started, I like literally just lost and started crying in the car. And I know myself enough to know that I, that's something I really needed. I needed to literally just have a full on release. And it sounds kind of crazy, but sometimes I will literally prescribe like take a moment at a time where you feel space and just like cry, especially if you haven't in a while. And you've been, especially as a mom and a woman, just holding together so many different people's emotions in your own household and wearing so many different hats. I don't feel like I've had the chance to sort of fully release and every once in a while, like really process and understand like just what we all have been surviving. And I don't, I think we overlook that a lot. And I know I certainly do. And so it's like it's like a double edge. Like it, I'm in an emotional state where I'm a little bit like I'm not great right now, but I also feel really good that I had that release, and it feels like a little bit of the pressure cooker has like released a little bit, and I needed that really badly. I just needed to be in my car listening to that music and just having a full. Who on was cry. the artist? We all want to know. Who was this high school nostalgic artist? It's so funny because ordinarily it probably would have been, you know, something like garbage or Mm -hmm. something emo. Yeah. But you know what it was, was I don't know if anyone listening will even know. And this is a whole nother thing of why I even listened to it in high school. But I used to listen to this Spanish rock band called Mana. And I know, I don't know. I, I for one do not know Mana. Yeah. I don't know but. where I even got it from. I had the CD and I was like really obsessed. And it's actually really beautiful. And the guy's voice is like crazy and it's so good. And it's a really big Spanish sort of rock band to people that actually listen to Spanish music. Spanish rock. Spanish rock. But I don't remember why, but it just brought me right back. Uh, a girlfriend of mine who also was not like a native Spanish speaker, This my best friend in high school, we <laughs> used to listen. Yeah. And I just like had this very visceral like memory of like, I don't know, like going to drive to like see my high school boyfriend and just how simple. It didn't feel simple at the time. You know, of course, as a yeah. teenager, you feel like the weight is the weight of the world's on your shoulders or like these these moments that you can look back and be like, that wasn't that big of a deal. But at the moment, it did feel like a big deal. But right now it just felt like, I don't know, it was just this like very interesting feeling of like how simple it was and how like, gosh, I kind of miss that. And I like, I wanted to like sit in it a little bit. Right. Well, I think we can only appreciate the simplicity in retrospect. Yeah. You know, like I think about lots of times when I was like, oh, I was so overwhelmed by this or that. And I think back and I'm like, I had nothing going on comparative to now. But the idea of prescribing a good cry, I love the notion of that. But I feel like unless like, look, for you, it's paired to Mana, we know. But like for somebody else, it's like when you're holding everything together so tightly, you know how sometimes it takes like for me, sometimes it's like I need physical pain. Yeah. I'm thinking of one day, it was something to do with my son. He was like doing something in the kitchen and 
and he had pulled out the drawer that has like all the silverware in it, but I hadn't seen that. And I got up to help him with something and I just like cracked my back on the back of the drawer. And it was just enough of that like physical release where like everything emotionally came out too. But without that, sometimes it's like we're bound so tightly. And you, you need something to just be able to let it go. And I love like that you had some time in your car and then, yeah, you have all these kind of visual stimulations reminding you of what's going on yeah. and then throw Afghanistan into the mix and there's not a dry eye in the house. Well, you know? I think it's so important, you know, over this time, I think something that I've really noticed working with companies or or people and even with myself is that you're constantly in survival mode, surviving whatever it is in your life. And it's not to say that your life, you know, the whole thing about comparing, well, like, at least I have a house to stay, to stay sort of safe in or whatever those things are. Of course, you can look at it that way and, and realize your privilege. But I do believe that being able to validate your own sort of obstacles that you've overcome or the things that you are surviving currently, whatever they are for you, and they seem really hard you know, I think that we've all kind of overlooked the amount of emotional weight this last year plus has taken on us, even if we're still yeah, able to- even if you to, have your creature right. comforts, even if you're right. not using a rock for a pillow. Yeah. And, you know, whatever that is to allow ourselves sometimes to have these moments of like, oh my gosh, like releasing because you're just in it. And and for me, that's definitely been something like every day I, I constantly feel between running a business, you know, doing my consulting, the podcast, being a wife, being a mom of two boys that are like four and nine months during this time. Last year, having to have been a pretend preschool teacher, teacher, I am not a preschool teacher, for my child while he was here, having to clean the whole house, be a chef, like cook every single meal, decide what to have, wearing all of these hats and making sure that the family is safe and and that we are at least eating or drinking water while doing all these things because everything got really insular. You don't really realize sort of like what, how much you're taking on and what you're doing until you have a moment sometimes to just be like, oh, like, wow, because yeah, you're in breath. it. Yeah. What do you, what do you think though? Because obviously there's been so much change and there's so much that we've lost. What are some of the things that you feel that you've gained from the last year? Yeah. I mean, for me, there's been quite a few silver linings um, over this past year, one of which is like super simple. But I remember right before the pandemic, we lived like in the West Hollywood area and my husband was driving to work um, on the West side every day. And we never got to have like a meal together. We just had our one son at the time. And I remember just like wishing and thinking like, you know, one thing that we really need to do is we really need to find a way to have like dinners together every single day. We have to have family dinner because that's what I had growing up and that's what my husband had growing up. And it was something really important to us. We actually started looking into like moving closer to mm-hmm. where my husband worked because it was just that that commute was just, it was brutal. And he was missing so much time with with our son. And then the pandemic started and it was almost like, be careful what you wish for. But in a in a great way, we literally had every meal together for a year. Right. He's like, did you say dinner or yeah. breakfast? Yeah. Well, lunch, we'll then give you breakfast, dinner, lunch, snack, snack yeah. dessert. Yeah. And then another thing I think was kind of what I already talked about before. And I think a lot of people have been feeling this, which is something that I'm really hopeful about, is just like, I almost feel like in some ways there was this reset button kind of thing, like almost like a 
uh, elimination, like how pe- how they have you go on an elimination diet to find out the things that are working for you or not in terms of like food, but in terms of everything that we spend our energy on, there's a lot of things we have to just stop. And so I think it gave me time and space to kind of like actually be really intentional with what I do and what I can put back into my life. And so I became a lot more intentional about all the thing, all the stimulus in my life or all the things that I was sort of consuming energetically, whether that was people that I was around or things that were in my house or literally like colors around me or food I was eating or uh, social media I was consuming or, you know, words I was reading. And so all of a sudden everything started getting really like there isn't so much time for like fluff. So like everything got really sort of like there's a purpose behind every single thing that I am sort of consuming right now because I don't really have the time to do anything else. And so it just got like really super focused and intentional. And that's something that I never really was forced to do before. I I had a taste of it when we, you know, when you're in the newborn phase with the child, you just don't have a lot of time for things. So you always hear people say like, well, certain things you just, they just get cut out out of your life or, or certain people because you just don't have the energy or time for it. And so this was on like a much bigger scale. And it's something that I think I looked at and I said, that's something I definitely want to take back into whatever my new normal is going to be when things, you know, start opening up and and feel like safe. Like I want to take that with me and not lose that and sort of just get lost in like the fluff again. Right. Or even some, you know, I was just talking to someone about this. It's like sometimes you, you're you so caught up in the hamster wheel of everything that you never get to have that assessment. And it's like sit with experiences afterwards, sit with your time spent with people. Do you feel like, is there something to have been gained from that? Do you feel good about the way that you feel? Does it make you feel left with some sort of negativity or anything? Right. Because if you really take a moment to assess all those experiences, you really can steer yourself away from things that are going to upset you, like you said, energetically or on some level where if you if you don't take the time, you maybe just don't notice. Yeah, absolutely. And also, like, I think that it's so important to recognize that we've all like globally gone through something very traumatic, like this global sense of trauma that all of us were lost, that all of us have had to go through because this situation and the pandemic obviously impacted everyone in the world. But at the same same sense, when you go through sort of like a global or anyone goes through struggle or trauma, you're also going through a period of resiliency. And so you grow from that. And I think that's such an important piece to not miss where no one would choose to have this year again at all or repeated. Most likely no one would choose to have the thing that they struggle the most with again. But when you do struggle, it comes with some sort of growth. Like if you've overcome that and you are still here and you're doing whatever you're doing today, looking back and being like, I survived the last 365 days and how have I grown? And like, you get to keep that. And so for myself, it's like looking at some of the limiting beliefs and things that I never thought I could do. It sounds like frivolous or or little or silly, but I remember during that time when my husband and Jag, my son and I were just, you know, like March, we go into lockdown and it was months and months and months of it where we're just like, it's just us. I mean, we didn't even see my parents, of course, like so many, no family, like nobody came in and out of our house. And so everything, we were just self-reliant in every single way on just us. And it really made me kind of look at each other and be like, wow, like I actually, like I always knew 
I'm glad I made the decision to marry my husband and we're a good team. And, you know, I'm so happy that Jag chose us and, and now Dio, but like, we can do this. Like, oh my God, I have so much faith and confidence in us, like being able to take on certain things because we were faced with so much that usually we maybe relied upon the help of others or, you know, outsourcing certain things or whatever it was. But like when push came to shove and we had to do it all and do it all ourselves, I was really proud of us. And I was proud of the way we worked together as a team. And I don't know if I would have gotten that. So. Right. Shifting gears, let's talk about the notion of having it all. Is that something that you subscribe to? And if so, what does that look like for you versus what you thought it would look like? Um, so no, I do not believe that I have the ability to have it all. And I think it's a really horrible notion that we, especially as women, have been sort of not just told, but like promised in some mm -hmm. weird way that we could have it all and all at the same time. And I think that is it's very detrimental and something that sets us all up for a very rude awakening and failure. And it's a lot of the times like what I'm dealing with in my practice where it, you know, sets someone up, a woman, especially up for like, well, blah, blah, blah talks about having it all. And I see it all over Instagram and this person looks really successful in their job, in their career. And they also have this amazing family and they also are like really healthy and put together and they're exercising all the time. And Everything just looks great. And I'm sitting here like- Based on what they're seeing on social media? Based on what media? they're seeing on social media right. or even articles that have come out about you know women doing it all and being able to have it all and super women and we're so resilient and um, we're great at multitasking and all of these things. And then you know most of us are sitting there and if we make headway in our career, we're sort of losing out on some moments with our family. Or if we're doing really well with our family, then we're like passing up certain opportunities in our career. And I don't think enough people really talk about the idea that that it's not about having it all, all the things you ever wanted all at once. But it's really more of this idea where hopefully you can get to a point where you're making empowered choices. And when you make a choice, there's actually consequences. And knowing fully well when you go into those what the consequences are, it's feeling a little bit more like an intentional decision rather than, but I want both. And I think that we can have aspects of both. It's just not at the same time. And we have to be really aware of what we are giving up to have sort of the other at that time and, and how that ebbs and flows. And then also, like, we can't forget that sometimes there are no choices. Like some people in this world don't, they don't have the choice to be able to choose one or the other. Like they're, you know, they might be a single mom and they want to be with their child and that's all they want, but they literally have to work all the time so that they can put food on the table or whatever that is. And, and we don't often have the choice, but, but when we do, and, and when we look at it and it's all about perspective, I think the worst thing we can do is to think or to be told that you can have it all and all at once. And then if you're not having it all and all at once, then you must not be winning at life or you might not be successful or you're not good enough. And that just brings up so many feelings of shame and guilt and less than and not enough and anxiety and burnout and, and all of those things. And another thing that I cannot stand, cannot stand is the word balance. 
I don't, mm-hmm. I, I, I hate the word balance and I don't, I try not to use the word hate very much, but I don't like the word balance. It is just, especially for women. And as a woman, I just feel like it's this very arbitrary notion that is really hard to define. And it feels like really impossible to ever really figure out what it is. And it kind of, it, it was very similar to the idea of like, you can have it all if you can just balance, just balance right. it. Like not really sure what balance even means. And I think it just sets us all up for like a never ending quest and and sort of battle to find what this balance is that we never really fully understand. And it's like, it's this idea of having it all figured out. And I much prefer, I always tell people, it's not about the word balance. And I'd rather replace that B word with another B word. And I have just talked about this on another podcast, but this idea of boundaries, like I'm a big believer of boundaries and they're oftentimes hard for us to set, especially like boundaries with our own selves, but that's a better way and a more healthy way of sort of going through life and figuring out and making decisions and and understanding consequences um, than it is about seeking this like impossible, invisible, uh, enigmatic like form of balance right. that we somehow think um, is the be all end all. Right. Of course. I think balance is so triggering as a concept. Yes. But I, I think sometimes su- people suffer when they focus too much on the way that they think things are supposed to look. Mm-hmm. Right. And admittedly, I think you know, and this is something I struggle with too, and I bet you see this a lot in your practice, but that people focus a lot on the way that they think things are supposed to feel. And admittedly, I don't love having feelings, I'm realizing. I don't sit with my feeling and then really process it and really examine like, why am I feeling this way? in a healthy way where then I could deal with it and move past it. I immediately judge myself. I'm like, why am I having this feeling? I'm mad at myself for having the feelings, which evokes more feelings. Do you know what I mean? And then it's like this spiral and it's based on so much judgment. And I do think that the two are connected, right? Like you are practicing during a time where people, it's not just an elusive sort of arbitrary thought of how things should be or should feel. But people are almost bringing in examples to you of what they're seeing in print or in social media of these projections of life in a way that's not really realistic. And how do you remind people that everything that they're seeing is not real and to focus really on sitting with feelings versus the comparison culture? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I have like a little uh, disclosure kind of thing, like a little PSA or disclosure on my bio on my Instagram that's like, Instagram is not reality. And I think we all could obviously use constant reminder of that where, again, I know we've heard it a hundred times, but social media is, it's like a reel. It's like when someone is trying to get a job and they put all their best clips into a reel and they show it to a producer and they're like, here, they've really carefully curated it. And I think oftentimes now in in recent times, a lot of us are trying, many of us are trying to be more transparent on social media. And I think that's so important. And I know I try to be, but in the end of the day, no matter what, it still is something that you 
you curate. And that's sort of the point of it. And if you can look at it that way and sort of be inspired by the curation, that's obviously a much healthier way to look at it. But listen, we're all humans and that is the draw. That is the addiction. That's what we do. And we are, as humans, we need to label things and we need to match them and compare them against ourselves. And that's what we do. And I think like the biggest thing with all of this is, is that over the past, like, I'd say half decade or maybe a little more, I think there's just been this really huge wave of toxic positivity. Yeah. Tell us what what you mean by that, this toxic positivity, because I read that and I would love to know what constitutes toxic positivity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's really funny, but um, I would say if I could describe toxic positivity in like one slogan, something that makes me pretty grossed out when I when I read it, um, it's good vibes only. Like to me, uh. that is literally the epitome of toxic positivity. Toxic positivity is really like this idea or insincere notion of positivity that can actually lead to harm. And it's it's actually the disregard and even vilification of the normal range of uh, human emotion. And so we as humans were actually built to feel and to experience the entire full range of emotions, which includes fear and sadness and mourning and anger and worry and all of these things. And they're actually experiencing those type of emotions. I think a lot of people are really surprised to hear, but those are actually ways in which we build resiliency and optimism. And so if you're if that's literally the core of being a human is to experience the full range of emotions, like that's literally how we are human and then all of a sudden we're in this culture where people are just like good vibes only. There's no room, there's no space for sadness or fear, uncomfortable uh, feelings. Like where does that leave us? Nobody on this planet, uh, you know, experiences good vibes only, like at all. So that's alienating Not all of us. Not this girl, at least, you know, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and like, and other examples of that, you know, are, you know, you'll get over it or just be happy or it could be worse. Um, you know, don't worry, be happy. And I think the, the point is that it's coming from a good intention. I think that whether we're talking to ourselves, speaking to ourselves or, a, someone we really care about and we love, it's our human sort of response to kind of want to fix something and make it better and sort of squash it because we're uncomfortable when someone else is uncomfortable. But actually like what we know about emotions and when someone's sharing an emotion with you, really like what they're asking for is not for you to fix it or make them feel better. They're actually just asking you to listen. And so to create like a space where it's okay, literally if you just were like, it's okay for you to tell me how you're feeling right now, or it's okay for you to cry in front of me and like sit with your own discomfort with that. That's a lot better. And like a healthier form of positivity is more sincere. It's more truthful. It's kinder. It offers hope, empathy, and it's really validating someone's struggles and like where they're at, you know, and not making them sort of jump to something else while at the same time, you know, making it normal and permissible and sort of like leaving some space for them to to kind of like accept or receive that something will change, but they don't have to be there yet. And they don't have to really know how or why. I think that it's so important that we're not just constantly slapping bumper stickers on everything because what we know about emotions is that's not how we work through them. Like we actually have to like knead through like dough our emotions. Like you can't, like that's just not how the brain works. It's not how our emotional state works. And a really, a much better way is sort of to be like, 
it's okay to cry. Like, how can I support you? Or this is really hard and you've gone through like hard stuff before. Um, I believe in you and I understand like why this could be so hard. And if, if you want to sit here and tell me about it or even say nothing at all and just hold space for them and, and give them empathy, like, or yourself, I think that's so much more healthy than sort of like squashing it. And it doesn't, there's, it, it, we can't go anywhere from that. Right. And as much as I think that this is a really important lesson for most of us as adults to learn, for any parents who are listening, you know, or for you and I to, to remember that that's also the best lesson that you could give for your kids too. Because if I acknowledge my lack of comfort with my own feelings, I'm not blaming my parents, but somewhere along the way, I obviously picked up some sort of social cue or Mm -hmm. something that it was not okay for me to feel a certain way and to bulldoze through that and just to work around it and rather than through it. And I think with kids too, it's, it's so often, you know, your inclination to want to fix problems for them. And really it all seems to come back to that toolkit, you know, that you're talking about, whether it's through the resilience that we get through living through the pandemic or really any challenge is that you come through on the other side with a better sense of self-assuredness and confidence based on the, the, the strength and the tools that you have been able to pull from during that challenge. Absolutely. But for people listening, I wonder, obviously you coined the term optimism doctor, and I understand that you trademarked that, but to you, what defines optimism? So, you know, it's really interesting when I'm speaking to a really large group of people, or I guess people listening right now, if I asked you, it's like the first word that comes to mind, you know, when you think of the word optimism. And more often than not, like the entire room will sort of, I'm like, just shout it out. And they'll be like, positivity or positive. Right. Glass, glass half full. Yeah. And I think that that's sort of our, it's not pop culture, but the mainstream view of optimism, I think, gets really wrapped together with this idea of positivity. And I think that Um, Sure, there are aspects of that, of course, in the notion of optimism, but I think it's really surprising to people when they find out that I'm like, oh, positivity and the word positive is maybe like third or fourth um, on the list that I think of when I think of the, the, you know, big star words or notions that, that I think of that are connected to optimism. And the first two words that come to mind for me are, are resiliency and curiosity. And so a true optimist is someone that actually sees the roadblocks and the setbacks and the less than ideal situations and you know the things that didn't go their way. They're very aware of them. They're super mindful of them. But the caveat really here is that they see them as temporary and something that they have the ability to overcome, even if they don't know how or when, but they just know based on their own resiliency in life that they will. So like there's there's a really important piece to that, the resiliency piece, which is that you actually can't sort of persevere through something if you're not recognizing what that struggle is. And so there's nowhere in that definition that says that there's no struggle or that there's good vibes only. And so actually, you know, in the curiosity piece is one of the most first and foremost things you can do when you're struggling with something is, yes, validate the struggle that you're in or, or that feeling that you feel. And the first thing is the first line of defense is always self-compassion. Like try really hard not to do what you automatically want to do, which is judge yourself and just try to come at it with like 
why would I be feeling this way? And there must be a reason I actually feel this way. And I'm going to just be compassionate towards that. And then the second huge piece is kind of like, I'm going to allow myself to sit in here, but at the same time, I'm going to allow these little moments of curiosity of just like how I'm going to change from this or how I'm going to grow from this. You don't have to solve it. You don't have to find the silver lining. You don't have to fix it. You don't even have to be able to get out of it, but you just have to kind of ask yourself in these little moments of like, this feels really crappy, but I also wonder how I'm going to grow from this. Okay, I'm back to feeling really crappy and it doesn't feel great, but remember the times I felt crappy before and I grew from them. But anyways, I'm feeling really shitty. And so it's really about that idea of just kind of staying open, not knowing how it's going to be fixed or when, but just like knowing that it will and that you are probably going to grow from it and you wonder how. Right. Or that perhaps a situation will not be fixed, mm-hmm. but that you're and still going still to grow, grow from it. And you'll still grow from it. And yeah, it's not, it is nowhere is it really about a single problem and fixing it. Like that is not right. how life works. Um, it's so much more about the process and the journey and sort of the growth and also just this idea of change, which I think is just so hard for all of us, which I have a lot of empathy for because I've learned as humans, that's like the hardest human state to be in is change. Yet it's something that happens in our everyday life. And just this idea of adapting and change is really tough and really hard, but it's something that it's like a muscle. Even more so right now, right? Because we don't know what the outcome is and we don't really even know what the challenge is right? because the variables keep shifting. But okay, so you talk about self-mastery. So for anyone listening, what would you say are your top three tips for people in terms of optimizing their well-being and their focus on optimism? Maybe it's a daily tip, something that feels like, you know, a little ritual that you're bringing in every day a value add for people who are trying to self-master. Yeah, I'm really big about this idea of self-mastery and really helping people come up with their own sense of tools that they can use and utilizing your own resources. So that means like sharpening tools uh, and your resources that you already have just by being a human. So it's not about buying something or um, doing an expensive retreat or you know, anything like that. It's literally about, yeah, the tools that you already come with. So it's a very personal thing. I think there's some things across the board we know from research, like spending more time outdoors is super key. And, you know, research shows that just spending on average two hours a week outdoors, that's all, um, really helps to increase positive mood and decrease stress cortisol levels. And so doing whatever you can to be outdoors is, is really big. But what I always like to say to people is that when you're not in a moment of sort of struggle and you're just in a moment of joy, you're doing something that brings you joy. Um, One of my tips is keep like a a note on your phone or whatever and jot it down, whatever it is. And don't judge it, whatever it is. It could be like taking a bath or skipping or listening to music or uh, drinking coffee or playing with your kids. Like literally it could be anything. It could take something that takes five seconds or something that takes like an hour, like getting a massage, you know, whatever it is, it could be something that costs no money or something that does cost money, no judgment, but whatever it is, just have this running list of things that bring you joy, things that calm you, things that ground you, things that put you in a state of awe. So like looking at nature or whatever it is for you. And that way, when you're in a moment where you need sort of to use one of your tools or something, but if you just go to your phone section and say, okay, what what just popped out at me that I think I can do or what one of these things is going to take two minutes and I can just do it. 
And so it's about being proactive. And I think that the best tool you can give someone is a tool that they can use themselves. So this idea of self-mastery and it's not dependent on anyone else. Yeah. No, I I, I think that that's so important. And also it just, you have to, again, it's like self-mastery. You have to be in charge of your own ship and you have to figure out your best practices for productivity and also for keeping yourself And for mental health. Yeah. I don't want to say balanced, but keeping yourself sane. Wait, Deepika, okay, so you mentioned obviously trying to figure out sort of what the rhythm is between all your endeavors and motherhood. But, you know, I know that you recently welcomed your second son and you've been pretty open about your struggles to get pregnant the second time, right? I don't know if you had issues with your pregnancy the first time. So interestingly enough, uh, so we did not have any fertility issues. Um, We had my first son pretty, you know, we got pregnant and, um, I don't want to be like, we weren't trying. Cause I just, that can mm-hmm. be kind of triggering, but, um, I got off the pill. I was on birth control and I didn't have a period. So I had no idea. And we just got pregnant and that was that, but I had a really, really awful pregnancy. And so you never know what part of it someone's struggling with. And so maybe it was easy for me to get pregnant, but I had a horrible pregnancy Many things went wrong. You know, I had something called hyperemesis gravidarum in which I literally threw up 35 times a day from six weeks pregnant until my son came earthside. Then I got um, really severe That was what Kate Middleton had as well, right? Yeah. And so were you on medicine? Yes. I was on something that they call diclegis, which is, I think, unison. It's like, it's sort of supplement-ish and it did not work for me at all. I mean, it was just nothing worked. I'm so sorry. That must have been a very intense time like a lemon in my purse and just sniff it, like scratch it and sniff it. And that sort of gave me some like relief for about a second. Um, but yeah, I threw up, you know, endlessly, constantly. I had to basically be house and bedridden. I was getting IVs all the time for fluid. It was pretty awful. I hated being pregnant and I felt like I was depressed. I was like chronically ill and that's very tough. But if it was just that, to be honest, not that I would ever in anyone else's shoes that went through that, if they didn't want to get pregnant again, I totally get it. But if it was just that, I honestly would have done it again because they said that I would have that again in a subsequent pregnancy. It was just the way my body dealt with the hormones. Um, But then what ended up happening is I got pretty severe preeclampsia out of nowhere. I had an emergent situation, an emergency C-section. He came early and thankfully he was okay. I was for the most part okay after like about a week stay in the hospital. And then we went on and I was focused on my son and about six months, you know, into his life, I was like, maybe I need to figure out what happened to me. Like something really crazy happened. Something was very emergent, but I was so focused on, you know, my son and him being born that I wasn't thinking about that. And so I went to a few specialists and I was like, what happened? Like, let's review the charts. Let's see why, what happened. And so we did a lot of testing and it uh, turns out that I had some sort of predisposition to blood clotting, which caused the preeclampsia. And they were like six different specialists from uh, different institutions were all agreed upon the fact that I had an extremely high chance, like something in the 86.5% or 85.5% chance of not making it through a subsequent pre- subsequent pregnancy. My God. And thank God that you had looked into it, right? Because yeah. was there anything through just your OB or anyone who had said, you need to be aware moving forward that this maybe is not the route for you? I mean... 
I think just the idea of having preeclampsia, it's something in itself that you would probably talk to your OB or a specialist, a high-risk specialist about moving forward with a subsequent pregnancy. And if it was just that, even that would have been really scary. And I think there's, you know, some medication, it's not guaranteed that can kind of help. But when it came from something else that was causing it, in my case, they were all like pretty shocked and said it was a miracle that, you know, I didn't clot with my first son and I didn't know about it. And so they were like, you probably will not, we can't tell you'll experience that miracle again. Like that was just, we would never be able to. Yeah. So it felt like as much as it felt like I look at him and I'm like, he is like, he saved me in some ways because he came early and he came early, but not early too early so that it would be detrimental to him. And if he came any later, it would have been, been I don't know what it, yeah. And Mm -hmm. so we escaped that kind of, for the most part, unscathed, except all the emotional, the damage I felt of like not being able to do what I thought my body should, quote unquote, be able to do. And it was a year of a lot of emotional um, sort of, it was traumatic for me. It was traumatic for me. The pregnancy, the, you know, the, the birth was traumatic. But then right when he came out, it was just like it was the only part of our whole journey that was easy. Like everything just worked. And in my case, the breastfeeding was, was okay. But I think it was because everything else was so bad and yeah. it just worked. People and say sometimes you get one end or the yes, other. Yes, you get one end and the other. And even that, you don't have to. There's people who are listening who had a beautiful pregnancy and yeah. who breastfeed like milkmaids and their bodies bounce back and God bless you. Right. And you just don't know what someone's going you just through. Don't know. And so the second time, it took us about a year to really come up with what we wanted to do. And Mm -hmm. it was not an easy decision. I struggled. Because you knew you wanted to have another child. Yes. We absolutely knew we wanted to have another child. And we looked into a few different options. And every single month of that year, I just would look at my husband and be like, it would just be like, let's just do it. But then I look at my Mm -hmm. son and be like, I'm not walking into like a fire. I'm a mother. I can't do that. That's absolutely irresponsible. And I would never put myself in that risk as a mom. And so it was really, it was really hard. And I am definitely someone that, like so many of us, that, you know, it's hard to relinquish control. And the ultimate relinquishing of control is like, for me, is like allowing someone else to carry my child. And, you know, we looked into many different options and, and, you know, I got some backlash from people like, why would you go through surrogacy when you can adopt? Right. I wanted to address the the sort of judgment that you referenced because I think that some of what, you know, we're talking about today and so much of what you do has to do with judgment, whether it's our judgment to ourselves, obviously is what we're really projecting when we judge other people too, you know, and vice versa is what you sort of learned about yourself in that process kind of having to kind of quell out some of the noise. You know, I couldn't explain it on like a rational level. I understood that. And we actually looked into many different options. But after having JAG and, you know, when I met my husband, I was never one of those people that really like, like I knew I wanted kids, but it wasn't like I was like, I need to have a kid right now. Uh, I didn't Mm -hmm. have that like motivation until I met my husband, until I fell in love with him. And then I all of a sudden was like, oh my gosh, I want your children. I want children with you. I want our children. And mm-hmm. it, and then we had Jag and, and it was really hard for me to not just be really open and honest about like, I want more of our children. And, and it took me a little bit of time to like 
meaning that you did not want to adopt a child because you want yeah we wanted to try it first and we still would like we still would and we're still actually open to that but we it took me a little while to work through knowing in my core that that was not selfish and that you know I didn't choose or want to have this thing as part of my body that you know would possibly kill me in a subsequent pregnancy and we had thank god a very both both our families on both sides were extremely supportive and it's not an easy process emotionally physically or monetarily um and we had a lot of support and help and people that you know i don't think we could have done it without that and so with that support and working through it and it wasn't something we took lightly we we took over a year to make the decision to actually move forward with it. And it was, you know, grueling at times emotionally, but also it was one of the most beautiful experiences I have ever had in my whole entire life. Like about two weeks after we we did the transfer, after finding our surrogate and moving forward, the world shut down. And so uh, it was even more of a lesson of like relinquishing control. I mean, I had to have my deepest trust in this person. Who you probably couldn't even see at yeah, that point, and, right? Yeah, and, and, and we spent a lot of time to try to find someone, you know, local enough to be able to be part of the entire process because we talked about it. And I said, I don't think I'll be able to emotionally go through it unless I'm like very involved. And it was just ironic that we took that long to find someone that met all that criteria and we had this bond and then the world shut down and like even if the person was local I couldn't see or be a part of it physically for a really long time until towards sort of the end and so I definitely feel like I changed so much and part of that was literally surpassing some of my deepest darkest fears and control issues just out of like sheer having to and it was a really right. beautiful experience. And I got to be there for the delivery. It was like my husband wasn't able to be part of anything because of the pandemic. And Aww. so that was just, I got to start being involved after like the 20, 20 weeks or so. And then it was me and her for the delivery. And honestly, there was something really beautiful about it and really special. And both I look at both my sons and in their own ways, they're both like absolute miracles and not the easiest of situations to get there, but not many things are. And I'm just deeply grateful. Right. And I love, I love you sharing that example of your own self-mastery that was sort of by necessity and really learning to relinquish control when you had Mm -hmm. no other options and the increased probably peace that you found coming out the other side knowing that that was something that you could do. Yes. For anybody who doesn't follow you now, where can they find you? Where can they buy your Optimism deck of cards? I know you have a podcast too. Please let everybody know where they can find you. Well, you can always find me on Instagram. I'm My handle's at Dr. Deepika Chopra. The card deck, the Things Are Looking Up card deck that we referenced, um, you can buy them on thingsarelookingup.co. Um, you can also follow Things Are Looking Up on Instagram at allthingsarelookingup.com. And the podcast is called Looking Up with Dr. Deepika Chopra, and it's available anywhere that you stream podcasts. So Apple, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere. Deepika, thank you so much for being here with us today. I know you don't believe in it, but if you could define what your own personal having it all would look like today, what would that be? I think my own personal having it all, very simply, if I could have that, is something that I think I've taken 
a lot of us have taken for granted and are just starting to understand after this year. And it would be to be in good health. Thank you. Having It All in Other Lies is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. The show is edited by Maureen Bigas. You can follow me on Instagram at Sarah underscore Riff and the show at Having It All Podcast. See you next week.